Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, February 28th, 1859, actually February 27th, 1859, New York Congressman Daniel E. Sickles stood in Lafayette Square across the street from the White House, pistol in hand, and shot and killed Philip Barton Key II, who was the district attorney of the District of Columbia and the son of Francis Scott Key. So Sickles had discovered that Philip Key was having an affair with his young wife. He shot him dead. A couple months later, though, Sickles would make history, as if that wasn't history enough, as the first person acquitted by reason of temporary insanity. And um, I will just say before we get into it that the phrase Daniel Sickles would make history seems to be one of these catch-all phrases in American history. He is a truly weird and original and complicated American character who we're very excited about talking about today. And a bunch of listeners have... Uh, reached out and said we should talk about Daniel Sickles. So here to discuss the murder, the acquittal, and the life of Daniel E. Sickles is, as always, Nicole Hammer of Columbia. Hello, Nikki. Hello, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley is here as well. Hello, Kelly. Hey there. And our special guest for this episode is Wright Thompson. Uh, he's a writer for ESPN. He has done this amazing podcast series called Bloodlines, which I'm a huge fan of. And his latest book is called Pappy Land. And I will just say that Wright is a... um among many other things, a chronicler of weird America. And so I think you're a perfect <laughs> fit for the life of Daniel Sickles here, right? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, the, I, I can't wait to get started. Like every twist and turn of this is <laughs> improbably more insane than the one that came before. So uh, just let's, <laughs> let's just pick a place and let it go off the rails. Exactly. And, and probably insane, but but you still might get off by reason of temporary insanity, That's it turns right. out. Um, so, so, Mickey, let's let's start in Lafayette Square on February 27th, uh, 1859. What do we know about why Sickles is taking a shot at the son of Francis Scott Key? Well, he's taking a shot because he got this anonymous letter that said that Key was having an affair with his wife. It indicated that he was having an affair with his wife because it actually said that there was this house that was being rented for the sole purpose of the two of them meeting. And whenever Key wanted to meet with Sickles' wife, he would hang a string out the window and that would be the sign that he was free and she should come over. Um, and this letter sort of burrows its way into um Sickles's mind, he then arms himself with three guns and a heavy cloak and wanders out to find Key. He ultimately does. And then the deed is done. 
Kelly, what do you make of this moment? I mean, is this uh, just a time when this is how people settle their scores or what's going on here? <laughs> I mean, a little bit. <laughs> if you think about the 1850s, I mean, it's rife with violence and and violence seems to be the way that people solve a lot of their problems. Duels are, are pretty much outlawed. People aren't really doing duels anymore. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it it's not completely outside the notion of reason for him to pick up a gun and decide that this is the best way to solve this problem. Well, I mean, before we even get to the trial and the temporary insanity and which we'll get to, because also they argued both sides of it, which I love, like every good defense attorney, they were both like he was completely insane, <laughs> but also totally knew what he was doing. But like, I just... I've been, you know, it's right there by the Hay Adams, like in between the Hay Adams and that church in the White House. And it's just sort of hard to conjure a time and a place where you could just walk out of the Hay Adams, walk over to somebody and just shoot him. And then my favorite part is he shoots the guy dead and then doesn't run off. He immediately goes and turns himself in and was like, look, Stu was sleeping my wife. I killed him. Uh, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Well, I, one of my favorite sort of tidbits when you research this is, you know, all the, um, what are they, lithographs or just the sort of depictions of it. There's just people kind of like standing around uh, just watching, you know, just seeing it. Go, no one's like jumping in front of the bullet or it's not done under cover of darkness. There's just people kind of milling oh, as this goes down. Uh, and, and I mean, have you ever heard a gun go off? It's really, really loud. I mean, like, I just, the folks just sitting around, like, I mean, there's no one eating a sandwich in the lithographs, but in my head, they're all just sort of eating a sandwich. There's a little taco truck over on the corner. Everyone's kind of viewing it for uh, for their entertainment for the afternoon. No, 100%. But the fact that no one tries to apprehend him either. It's not like the crowd or bystanders mm -hmm. are like, tackle him. He's running away. You know, like that's that's not what happens either. I mean, we no. should underscore too how famous these two men are. I mean, Sickles himself is a buddy of the president, yeah. James Buchanan. Um, he's very much part of the Washington elite. And Key, as we mentioned at the top, is the son of Francis Scott Key, who wrote the national anthem. And while that might seem like a little asterisk in history at the time, like this was a a really famous family. And so here are these two, it's not just that there are two men who were in a conflict over this affair, but they were two high society men who were having this confrontation out in the street in front of the yeah. White House. You know, Francis Scott Key had to be like, look, I'm a founding father. I wrote the Star Spangled Banner, you know, Rockets Red Glare. And now my idiot son who has been trading off of my name is running around DC with like famous violent people's wives. And, you know, he had to just, I mean, obviously he mourned the death of his son, but he also had to just be like, really? Like you were born on third base. And instead of coasting into home, you were trying to run back to first. Yeah. There's no other woman, no other woman <laughs> <By> <laughs> you can engage with right now. <laughs> like a hundred percent. Well, this, I mean, this gets to a bigger question, which maybe we can table for a second, which is, you know, just kind of like, were there only 30 people in America at the time? And just these, you know, you get these stories where it's just like everyone keeps crashing into each other over and over and over. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of an element of that. But let's move to to the trial itself. So, right, what is your sense of how the trial goes down? Um, as you were saying, there's a very interesting defense. And then I think the way that temporary insanity gets argued is, is, is really fascinating as well. Well, I mean, the broad strokes, so then we can sort of pull these threads 
as we like. I mean, to me, it's interesting because the broad strokes are the defense strategy was one. This was a crime of passion, uh, which I would try to say in French, but I went to high school in Mississippi and uh, cannot do that. Uh, And but, you know, crime of passion. But they also basically destroyed this woman in the press. I mean, this was the invention of a playbook that still happens. In one hand, let's shine something flashy to give the jurors a reason to acquit. In the other hand, let's just destroy his wife so that, you know, him shooting this guy in broad daylight in the middle of the center of town not only is an excusable thing, but ultimately appears inevitable and they can't imagine themselves not doing it. Like that's, I mean, that's the stagecraft of a defense trial. So they argued successfully temporary insanity. They also destroyed his wife. And because of that destruction, we're able to say, look, he had to do this. I mean, not just for his marriage, but for all of your marriages. This is how order and justice is maintained in a civilized world. So they did both. I mean, that's the magic trick of whoever his defense attorneys were. Right. This makes complete sense. And also it is a sign that he was out of his mind, which is such an interesting double-sided argument to make. I think part of the reason that the notion of insanity is there is this idea that men cheat all the time, right? Men cheat all the time. But women cheating, a woman's infidelity is not just a mark of like problems in the marriage. It's it's a mark of there must be something wrong with you as the husband. And I think that that could not be squared in 19th century like Victorian politics where people could not reconcile a woman's infidelity. It's the ultimate scandal. For men, it is. And so I think... The notion of insanity makes sense based on how could you reconcile a woman cheating? Women don't cheat. And women who do cheat are like reckoned mm-hmm. as prostitutes. So, you know, the the way in which she gets destroyed is almost to say she's put herself on the road to prostitution by having this affair. What's so interesting is she actually, in one of her public comments, said that. I mean, she said something to the effect of uh, this affair was a gateway drug to common prostitution. I mean, like... You know, and one this was the trial of the century at the time. So you have to imagine that their versions of uh, Nancy Grace were going crazy at the time, just in newspapers. And so, you know, there hasn't always been television, but there has always been Nancy Grace uh, in some form or another. And so, like all of the gossip rags were going were going crazy. And this was one of her comments, and that that's exactly what you were talking about. Is that you know. By killing this man, he had actually saved his wife from becoming a prostitute was one of the arguments that they successfully made, by the way. Like, Mm. it's not just some crazy stuff they said. Like, this worked. This dude walked out of that courthouse and, like, went to the old Ebbett if it was there and, like, had a cocktail. So much of this turns on the idea of women as property mm. um, and a woman's virtue as the thing that her husband prizes above all. And so because she violated both of those things, because she wasn't loyal to her husband and because somehow her virtue had been desecrated, um, that that made her the villain in all of this. But it all turns on just 
really deep-seated misogyny. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because her virtue is an extension of his identity. So in that sense, you know, her Hmm. being flawed makes him flawed and he can't be flawed. So, I mean, it's like the two things of the 19th century and even now is money and sex. Those are the greatest scandals of all time. And and like almost as if to sort of perfectly prove your point, after the trial, everybody's willing to forgive the murder. And everyone is willing to forgive the scandal of a big public trial. What they, however, are not willing to forgive in polite D.C. society is that he and his now flawed wife reconcile. And, like, people stop inviting them to things. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's okay that you killed Francis Scott Key's kid in broad daylight. But the fact that you would be willing to once again share a home with this person was unforgivable in 1850s America. I mean, they were completely shunned. And I just thought that was like incredibly unlikely. Like, I, and yet, as you're saying that, of course, it's not unlikely, it's completely logical. Just, it's, you have to be in that time and place for that to make sense. Um, so I wanna move us to the other chapters of um, Sickles' life, just because what we've been discussing is like chapter 11 of a 15 chapter book or whatever. And so there are other chapters and I don't know exactly how we, how we want to structure this. Um, so I don't know, uh, Nikki, you want to, you want to start here? I mean, when, when you start to talk about this as a truly quintessential American figure, where, where do you start? Well, if we're going to pick up post-murder trial, I mean, it is no surprise that the next act of his life is fighting in the civil war. Um, he, look, The man is a bit of a hothead, and that comes out as a soldier as well. He defies orders, um, ends up getting hit by a cannonball, um, losing his leg, um, which he later... At Gettysburg. Loses his leg at Gettysburg, ships his leg around um, as sort of a, a, a... what, a prize of the war, a trophy of the war. Gross. Um, and generally uh, lobbies to get himself a bunch of medals um, for his his what he considers his brave actions. <laughs> he actually earns the Medal of Honor. I mean, it took him 34 years to do it, but he gets the Medal of Honor, the highest honor you can get as a soldier. And so, um, I mean, to me, I, I'm still sort of, you know, gripped by the fact of his amputee leg being on display for people to look at. But there's, there's a lot about him that's just weird, as we said at the top of the show. Yeah. Um- well, first, I just want to acknowledge, you know, Kelly, you're a very serious historian, but I appreciate that your basic assessment of this leg thing is just gross, right? It's okay to have those moments where you just say, yeah, that's gross. Uh, <laughs> uh, start there, and then you do your sort of deep historiography. But, um, but right? You want, yeah, sorry, yeah. Ahead, I, I right? believe it was Robert K- Cairo who famously said, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, by all accounts, he was incredibly brave. He also was incredibly stupid. I mean, he got his ass kicked at Chancellorsville by Stonewall Jackson. Uh, He goes to Gettysburg, has very specific orders about what hill to defend. He decides that there's another hill that he would like to defend more. And so completely exposes them. The Union line gets run through. He gets wounded. He comes back to D.C. and starts lobbying hard so that in the court of public opinion and with the powerful politicians he's known his whole life, he doesn't end up hung out to dry in case, by the way, they don't know then that Gettysburg was the turning point in the war. Like it, 
you know, the fog of war is real. And so you have to imagine he's going back to D.C. wanting to make sure he doesn't get blamed for the fall of the Union. Because at this point, it's not in the immediate aftermath. It's not so clear what is clear to us now, which is that uh, Lee made a tragic, tragic decision to try to go north and basically busted up the entire Army of Virginia, and they never really recovered from it. And so it's so interesting that to try to imagine his reaction in real time of, I got to go down to D.C. and make sure I don't get blamed for this shit show. I mean, I, I can say to his credit, during Reconstruction, he pushes for African-American rights. I'm always a fan of that. So, I mean, that <laughs> well, what's your sense? What's your sense of where that comes from? You know, I think I, I really feel like when you faced public scandal in the way that he did. And I think part of this is the fact that because he faced public ridicule, he saw himself in some ways as like, part of the people who are oppressed who have faced this kind of like public ridicule hmm. he saw himself maybe in that same position yeah um you know there's one way that i have come to think of sickles that i think actually helps me i think understand something about people that we see now and and just in general something that i think is seen throughout history but you know it's like it's a, it's almost like a life lived as a PR campaign, you know, I mean, he does all these things, but he's mostly seeming to just like be spinning these things and going from kind of PR campaign to PR campaign. It's like the amputated leg, which he sends to a museum as part of a PR campaign. As you were saying, right, there is a the time when he also embezzles some money, a little light embezzling uh, <laughs> snuck in there when he stole some money from a, from a fund to, to make Civil War monuments. But like, that's how I really kind of came to come to understand him. And I think we are surrounded by those types of people still who every act of their career is just another attempt at rehabilitation repositioning cleaning up a mess um, and they just go from one of those to one of those it feels very quintessentially american <laughs> you know it's interesting constantly spinning early advocate for battlefield memorials you know he's the only major general at gettysburg who doesn't have a statue of himself and he sort of famously said the yeah. whole the whole battlefield is a monument to me, except that it isn't. You know, all these names he squared off against and alongside, we remember. You know, people remember the name Stonewall Jackson. People remember Ulysses S. Grant. People remember Generals Bragg and, and General Lee and General Sheridan and General Sherman. Nobody remembers this dude's name. And it, it, he is so unknown that he is now the topic for a quirky podcast about people you don't remember. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, but in some ways, the fact that we're even having this conversation is proof that on a certain level, the American historian apparatus and the American public can ultimately sort out the fake from the real thing. Like, we don't remember this guy because he's a jackass. Like, it, 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 it's not a random twist of fate that he has slipped through the hands of memory and time. I mean, he's a dipshit. Like, history worked exactly as it should here. Historical judgment for the win. Ba bad sickles. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, well, look, that feels like as good of a place to end as any. I don't think we've ever actually sworn at our subject our historical subject on this podcast before so you know it's a first uh, thank you Wright Thompson for that but look like we haven't even get to the fact that he obviously went on to be a New York representative he was the minister to Spain for a while and maybe had an affair with uh, Queen Isabella II um, so yes Sickles did have a bunch of chapters and then he is buried in Arlington National Cemetery and the leg 
is still you can go see it, right? Yeah, Did I get that right. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is at the National Museum of Health and Medicine for those who post COVID want to go take a peek. Oh God. <laughs> Oh my God! I, I I was in Ireland doing a Conor McGregor story one time for ESPN, and I was uh, so the first real Irish champion was this guy named Dan Donnelly, who was the most famous person in Ireland for 15 years, and is a really interesting analog. And turns out that his arm, his right arm, was displayed in a pub for like 70 years. And then the owners of the pub sold it. And so I went to their house to interview them about it. And she pulls this box oh. out and she puts it on the table in front of me. And it's Dan Donnelly's arm. Oh. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this just got <laughs> yeah. really, really weird. And uh, I'm surprised they didn't bury the leg with him in Arlington. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's certainly, you know, I think that's his legacy at this point. Legacy. There it is. That's his there legacy. <laughs> Okay, well, that's definitely where we're going to end it. Um, between between Dan Donnelly's arm, Sickles' leg, like we're, we're two-fifths of the way to a historical Frankenstein here. And so, you know, at some point, right, you can you can write that piece. Um, but Wright Thompson of ESPN, the podcast that I that he did last year that I love is called Bloodlines. The new book is Pappy Land. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. This was really fun. This was fun. Thanks, right. And Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always. Thank you, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of independent, listener-supported, artist-owned podcasts. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Our producer is Brittany Brown. Follow us on social media, This Day Pod, where we are posting a bunch of stuff on Twitter and Instagram every day. Get in touch with us, thisdaypod at gmail.com. We love hearing from listeners with questions, comments, suggestions for future topics. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is our democracy is broken. We can all feel it and there's data to back it up too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact though? Money. You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.